It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Uh, you know, Rich, it, uh, it doesn't take much for a person to care about their own life and their own situation and uh, to preserve themselves. That's, that kind of comes with the territory, doesn't it? Well, that's true, Dad. Uh, but, you know, the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that you lay down your life for another. Yeah. And, of course, then there's the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, uh, today's program is going to be devoted to a current story. It's brand new. And yet we are also going to use a speech by Congressman Henry Hyde that he gave on the floor of the House of Representatives many years ago. And the thing I want to ask each and every person, why is it that we still struggle with this question? The life of a child. What's it worth? To whom is it worth anything? And what's it worth to God, for goodness sake? Why should we as a nation continue to take public money, public money for goodness sakes, and give it to Planned Parenthood, who is the abortion industry's number one champion. And even the church, you know, isn't it interesting how the church doesn't seem to be troubled by this as much as it should? Not as much as, as it should, Dad, but the, the surveys and the research is showing that the population across America is becoming more and more and more pro-life, more and more recognizing the sanctity of this innocent human life within the womb. Well, and no, maybe part of that is the 4G ultrasound, the 4D ultrasound and other technology, but also the recognition that it's a baby. Yeah, well, it is a baby. It is a baby. All right, now listen, this story, and we'll get to the speech in a moment, but I want every Christian, for goodness sake. Well, let me just say this. I was talking to a lady. Uh, she's not a Christian, but she certainly, matter of fact, well, anyway, she certainly says that she's a liberal, 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 and she anguishes over the issue of slavery and the issue of segregation and the issue of hatred between the races and all that sort of thing. And I was uh, visiting with her, and I was certainly agreeing with her 100%. People know where my heart is on that, on that question. But I said, you know what? I said, I wonder if 50 years from now, people will be looking back on our generation and say, how could they have treated their unborn children the way they did? How could they have done that? What kind of evil people were they? Looking back 25, 30, 40 years from now, looking back on our generation, how could they have done that? That's the way we look at the days of slavery, the days of, uh, of uh, Jim Crow and all of that stuff. Terrible, terrible. And as a matter of fact, the seeds of that are still around us. The seeds of that still grow pretty unim unimpeded in our culture. But let me just get to this story, Rich. There's a Michigan mom with terminal brain cancer, and she has just given birth to her baby girl while she herself was on life support. Now, the mother has passed away in the last few days since this story came out. Here it is, Carrie Declinen. I believe that's a Dutch name, I think. Capital D-E, capital K-L-Y-E-N. Sacrificed her life to save her little daughter. 
It was a decision the 37-year-old mother from Wyoming, Michigan, made last May when she was still conscious um, but very sick with terminal brain cancer. Now, chemotherapy or a clinical trial could have prolonged her life, but both options would mean terminating her pregnancy. On Wednesday evening, just this past week, she delivered a baby girl while on life support, and she named and the little baby girl had been named Life L I F E. On Thursday morning, doctors removed uh, the mother's feeding and breathing tubes, and family members gathered at the University of Michigan Hospital to welcome the new little baby and to say a painful goodbye to the mother. The mother's name was Carrie, and she slipped away. Her husband, Nick, said he knows they made the right choice. In quotation marks, she chose to have that baby. That's what she wanted, and I supported her in that, he said. She had the baby, and now it's time to go home. She's going home to heaven. She's going to be healed, and our baby will be with our family until that baby's time comes. Carrie and Nick, this is the mother and the father, picked out the name Life, L-I-F-E, for this baby after the birth of their two-year-old son. Uh, they were talking casually one day about what they might name their next child, which would be their sixth child, if they decided to expand their family further. That was before Carrie knew that she was already sick and before she knew that she was also pregnant. The headache started last March. You think you're going uh, into the doctor for a migraine headache, Nick said. The doctor came back and said, you have a mass on your brain, but it doesn't look like cancer at the moment. Things turned grim in the operating room, however. At the hospital, it turned out the mass was cancer. Doctors said they thought it was lymphoma, and, uh, and uh, they removed what they could. Pathology tests revealed later that it was actually a uh, glioblastoma. Is that right, Rich? Am I saying that right? I, I think so. Which is a malignant tumor that is notoriously tough to treat. Now, last May 9th, the doctors drew blood and performed an MRI. Two days later, the hospital called. The tumor was growing very fast, and indeed she was pregnant. Now, her physician told her she could not join the clinical trial if she was pregnant, but chemotherapy would be risky for the baby as well. Now, the father said that he and his wife, and this is in quotes, me and my wife, we are people of faith, Nick said. We love the Lord with everything in us. We talked about it, and we prayed about it. I asked her, what are you thinking? And she said, all the treatments, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have any of them uh, for the sake of the baby. Even with everything on the table, my wife chose our baby. The couple felt at peace with that decision. We're pro-life, Nick said. Under no circumstances do we believe you should take a child's life. She sacrificed her life for our baby. After a second surgery to remove more of the tumor, they went back home 
to their five children, ranging in ages from two years to 18. Nick sold his share of vending machine company to care for his wife uh, with no income. Uh, the family had gotten by through money raised through the Cure for Carry uh, fund in the GoFundMe page. In the middle of June, uh, Nick um, Carey, Carey started feeling sick again with headaches so terrible they made her throw up. Doctors inserted a catheter uh, to relieve the fluid that was collecting on her brain at that time. I'm sorry to be so graphic, folks, but this is life. A week later, she was back in the hospital. At 19 weeks pregnant, she lost consciousness while in the emergency room. Doctors said there was no hope for her, but they may be able to save the baby. She was put on devices to feed her and help her breathe until the baby grew to a weight where she could be safely delivered. Ultrasound showed the baby growing slowly. During the ultrasound, um, she had a heartbeat but wasn't moving. The good news was she weighed 625 grams, uh, which is above the 500-gram minimum doctors uh, had been waiting for. Nick told the doctors then to go ahead with a C-section. Now, baby Life Lynn, her first name is Life. Isn't that something? Her second name was Lynn, named after her mother. So baby Life Lynn was born late Wednesday afternoon of last week. At 24 weeks and five days, she weighed one pound and four ounces. The baby is doing better than anyone expected, Nick said Thursday afternoon. She is healthy and she's almost breathing on her own now. After little life's birth, the doctors removed Carrie's life support devices. The couple's three oldest children, Elijah, 18, Isaiah, 16, and uh, Neve, 11, spent Thursday sitting with their mom in what they expected to be her final moments. The last few days have been super hard. There's a lot of pain, Nick said. Nick and Carrie have been married for 17 years. They met at church when she when she was only 10 years old and he and he was 12 years old. Folks, can you see these two little kids meeting at church? When she was 10 and he was 12, how do any of us know what's in store in the future? But we do know who holds the future. That's my own little editorial insert right now. Carrie had an overwhelmingly loving and generous spirit, her husband said. The little stay-at-home mom cooked dinner for neighbors and went out of her way to help those around her that she found that were in need. Uh, throughout their marriage. I want people to know she gave of herself for everybody. In her last days, she gave of herself for her own little child, said Nick's sister, Sonia Nelson of Wyoming. We are proud of her. 
Nick said because of how Carrie lived her life and the sacrifices she made in her death, he knows they will be reunited someday together. This life is so quick, he said. I'm 39 years old. It feels like I've just blinked. Before I know it, I'm going to be an old man. I'm going to pass away, and I'm going to see my wife again. I understand that. That's what gives me peace for the job ahead right now. All right, now, folks, considering this and considering the years that have gone by, since Congressman Henry Hyde brought this speech in Washington on the floor of the House of Representatives. Now, this has to be, well, Rich, you were talking about partial birth abortion at that time. Let me tell you, in every state where you're listening to this broadcast, when your public money is going to fund Planned Parenthood, and we have to argue about it, and we have to give big speeches about it, we have to have politicians pontificate, as to whether it's right or whether it's wrong, and on and on and on. I want to ask you, what does your church do about it? What does your pastor say about it? At what point are the citizens going to vote according to what is clearly right and clearly wrong? Here is Congressman Hyde. Mr. Speaker, I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Hyde, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. The gentleman from Illinois is recognized for 15 minutes. I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. And I also beg the indulgence of my colleagues not to ask me to yield because I cannot and will not, and I would appreciate the courtesy. I also want to say briefly that those who have charged us with politics, invidious politics, for delaying this ought to understand that Americans can't believe this practice exists. And it has taken months to educate the American people. And it'll take many more months to educate them as to the nature and extent of this horrible practice. That is one reason it has taken so long. Now, the law exists to protect the weak from the strong. That's why we're here. Mr. Speaker, in his classic novel, Crime and Punishment, <clears throat> Dostoevsky has his murderous protagonist Raskolnikov say, man can get used to anything, the beast. That we're even debating this issue, that we have to argue about the legality of an abortionist plunging a pair of scissors into the back of the tiny neck of a little child whose trunk arms and legs have already been delivered, and then suctioning out his brains only confirms Dostoevsky's harsh truth. <clears throat> we were told in committee by an attending nurse that the little arms and legs stop flailing and suddenly stiffen as the scissors is plunged in. People who say, I feel your pain, aren't referring to that little infant. What kind of people have we become that this procedure is even a matter for debate? Can't we draw the line at torture and baby torture at that if we can't, what's become of us? We're all incensed about ethnic cleansing. What about infant cleansing? There's no argument here about when human life begins. The child who's destroyed is unmistakably alive, unmistakably human, and unmistakably brutally destroyed. The justification for abortion has always been the claim that a woman can do with her own body what she will. Well, if you still believe 
that this four-fifths delivered little baby is a part of the woman's body, then I'm afraid your ignorance is invincible. I finally figured out why supporters of abortion on demand fight this infanticide ban tooth and claw. Because for the first time since Roe v. Wade, the focus is on the baby. Not the mother, not the woman, but the baby. And the harm that abortion inflicts on an unborn child, or in this instance, a four-fifths born child. That child, whom the advocates of abortion on demand have done everything in their power to make us ignore, to dehumanize, is as much a bearer of human rights as any member of this house. To deny those rights is more than a betrayal of a powerless individual. It betrays the central promise of America that there is in this land justice for all. The supporters of abortion on demand have exercised an amazing capacity for self-deception by detaching themselves from any sympathy whatsoever for the unborn child, and in doing so, they separate themselves from the instinct for justice that gave birth to this country. There's no moral, nor for that matter, medical justification for this barbaric assault on a partially born infant. Dr. Pamela Smith, Director of Medical Education in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, testified to that, as have many other doctors. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the last credible Surgeon General that we had, was interviewed by the American Medical Association in so doing, he cited several cases in which women were told these procedures were necessary to preserve their health and their ability to have future pregnancies. How would you characterize the claims being made in favor of the medical need for this procedure? Quoting Dr. Koop, question, in your practice as a pediatric surgeon, have you ever treated children with any of the disabilities cited in this debate? Have you operated on children born with organs outside of their bodies? Answer, oh yes, indeed. I've done that many times. The prognosis is good. There are two common ways that children are born with organs outside of their body. One is an omphalocele, where the organs are out but still contained in the sac composed of the tissues of the umbilical cord. I have been repairing these since 1946. The other is when the sac is ruptured. That makes it a little more difficult. I don't know what the national mortality would be, but certainly more than half of those babies survive after surgery. Every once in a while you have other peculiar things such as the chest being wide open and the heart being outside the body. And I have even replaced hearts back in the body and had children grow to adulthood. Question, and live normal lives? Answer, living normal lives. In fact, the first child I ever did with a huge omphalocele, much bigger than her head, went on to develop well and become the head nurse in my intensive care unit many years later. The abortionist who is a principal perpetrator of these atrocities, Dr. Martin Haskell, has conceded that at least 80% of the partial birth abortions he performs are entirely elective. 80% are elective. And he admits to over a thousand of these abortions, and that's some years ago. We're told about some extreme cases of malformed babies as though life is only for the privileged, the planned, and the perfect 
Dr. James McMahon, the late Dr. James McMahon, listed nine such abortions he performed because the baby had a cleft lip. Many other physicians who care both about the mother and the unborn child have made it clear this is never a medical necessity, but it is a convenience for the abortionist. It's a convenience for those who choose to abort late in pregnancy when it becomes difficult to dismember the unborn child in the womb. If there is one consistent commitment that has su survived the twists and the turns of policy during this administration, it is an unshakable commitment to a legal regime of abortion on demand. Nothing is or will be done to make abortion rare. No legislative or regulatory act will be allowed to impede the most permissive abortion license in the democratic world. In his memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower wrote about the loss of 1.2 million lives in World War II. And he said the loss of lives that might have otherwise been creatively lived scars the mind of the civilized world. Mr. Speaker, our souls have been scarred by one and a half million abortions every year in this country. Our souls have so much scar tissue, there isn't room for any more. And say, what do we mean by human dignity? If we subject innocent children to brutal execution when they're almost born, we all hope and pray for death with dignity. Tell me what's dignified about a death caused by having a scissor stabbed into your neck so your brains can be sucked out. We've had long and bitter debates in this house about assault weapons. Those scissors and that suction machine are assault weapons worse than any AK-47. You might miss with an AK-47. The doctor never misses with his assault weapon, I can assure you. It isn't just the babies that are dying for the lethal sin of being unwanted or being handicapped or malformed. We are dying, and not from the darkness, but from the cold, the coldness of self-brutalization that chills our sensibilities, deadens our conscience, and allows us to think of this unspeakable act as an act of compassion. If you vote to uphold this veto, if you vote to maintain the legality of a procedure that is revolting even to the most hardened heart, then please don't ever use the word compassion again. A word about anesthesia. Advocates of partial birth abortions tried to tell us the baby doesn't feel pain. The mother's anesthesia is transmitted to the baby. We took testimony from five of the country's top anesthesiologists and they said this impossible. That result would take so much anesthesia, it would kill the mother. By upholding this tragic veto, you join the network of complicity in supporting what is essentially a crime against humanity. For that little almost born infant struggling to live is a member of the human family. And partial birth abortion is a lethal assault against the very idea of human rights and destroys, along with a defenseless little baby, the moral foundation of our democracy. Because democracy isn't, after all, a mere process. It assigns fundamental rights and values to each human being, the first of which is the inalienable right to life. One of the great errors of modern politics is our foolish attempt to separate our private consciences from our public acts, and it can't be done. At the end of the 20th century is the crowning achievement of our democracy to treat the weak, the powerless, the unwanted as things
to be disposed of. If so, we haven't elevated justice. We've disgraced it. This isn't a debate about sectarian religious doctrine nor about policy options. This is a debate about our understanding of human dignity. What does it mean to be human? Our moment in history is marked by a mortal conflict between a culture of death and a culture of life. And today, here and now, we must choose sides. I'm not the least embarrassed to say that I believe one day each of us will be called upon to render an account for what we've done and, maybe more importantly, what we failed to do in our lifetime. And while I believe in a merciful God, I believe in a just God. And I would be terrified at the thought of having to explain at the final judgment why I stood unmoved while Herod's slaughter of the innocents was being reenacted here in my own country. This debate has been about an unspeakable horror. And while the details are graphic and grisly, it has been helpful for all of us to recognize the full brutality of what goes on in America's abortuaries day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We're not talking about abstractions here. We're talking about life and death at their most elemental. And we ought to face the truth of what we oppose or support, stripped of all euphemisms. And the queen of all euphemisms is choice, as though you're choosing vanilla and chocolate instead of a dead baby or a live baby. Now, we've talked so much about the grotesque. Permit me a word about beauty. We all have our own images of the beautiful, the face of a loved one, a dawn, a sunset, the evening star. I believe nothing in this world of wonders is more beautiful than the innocence of a child. Do you know what a child is? She's an opportunity for love. And a handicapped child is an even greater opportunity for love. Mr. Speaker, we risk our souls, we risk our humanity when we trifle with that innocence or demean it or brutalize it. We need more caring and less killing. Let the innocence of the unborn have the last word in this debate. Let their innocence appeal to what President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Let our votes prove Raskolnikov is wrong. There is something we will never get used to. Make it clear once again, there is justice for all, even for the tiniest, most defenseless in this our land. And I yield back the balance Mr. of my Chairman, time. Will you yield me? No. You know, Rich, Rich, when he brought that speech in Washington, on the floor of the House of Representatives, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton was president then at that time. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, folks, when are we going to get on our high horse and tell the politicians to knock it off? That we are not, we are not in favor of killing our unborn children any more than we should have ever been in favor of having human beings as slaves or let Jim Crow run wild across our country and get away with it? When will we, the people of the church, wake up and use our vote and our voice to say enough is enough? What say you? Well, we thank the Lord for Congressman Henry Hyde, and we've heard of the Hyde Hyde Amendment uh, that's named after him. But uh, we thank him for his clarity, in, in moral clarity, in speaking there on the the House floor and throughout his life. And, and we want more and more and more like him 
in our generation to speak with boldness and with moral clarity well, well, to the issues the of the day. Well, you know what? And then uh, what is the priority for the issue of life? Just stop and think life and then liberty. That's freedom. And then the pursuit of happiness. But life comes first. So people can say, oh, well, I know that so-and-so is not really genuinely pro-life, but they're all, they're, they like, I like them for these other reasons. I like them for these other reasons. Why, my goodness sakes, all of this and that. Well, wait a minute. Can't you go back to square one? We're talking, first of all, about life. And it's the life of the most innocent. Right. I'll tell you what. If we would get that straight— and say, knock it off to Washington and all the politicians, including the state politicians, we would then be a lot closer to say, now let's clean up our schools, let's clean up our neighborhoods, let's clean up the opportunity for people to live and prosper and and really, really do it the way it's supposed to be done. And we want to salute those that are working in the pregnancy resource centers across the nation, places like the Assure Women's Clinic the Center up there in Omaha and all across our country. Now, isn't that the truth? All right. Well, folks, uh, as you can see, I've been pretty exercised here. I want to keep track of this little baby, this little baby that was born up in Michigan. Her first name is Life, L-I-F-E. Her second name is Lynn, named after her mother. We want to keep track of her and her father and her brothers and sisters and how the family goes. God bless people who put their priorities straight. This is Dick Bott and Rich with our chapter of The Complete Stories of Public Service, and we'll see you later. 